Today on Lawfare No Bull. On March 1st, the Senate Judiciary Committee held a hearing to examine oversight of the Department of Justice. The committee heard from Attorney General Merrick Garland, who discussed topics ranging from Section 230 reform to climate change to FISA's Section 702 and more. Attorney General Garland, welcome. This is the third time you've appeared before this committee. You have many pressing responsibilities, I should say, as Attorney General. You have many pressing responsibilities, and I appreciate your taking the time to be here today. There's so many subjects under your jurisdiction worthy of close examination, which I'll turn to a few in a moment. But we shouldn't take for granted that we now have a Department of Justice with a renewed dedication. When you were sworn into office two years ago, the department was embroiled in scandal. You committed to restoring its independence, and I believe you've kept your word. I expect that we'll hear accusations today from some of my Republican colleagues to the contrary, such as weaponization of the Justice Department. The reality is you've recommitted the department to serving the American people and not the personal interests of any one political figure. You've taken the appropriate steps to ensure that investigations are not overshadowed by politics. You have not interfered with the investigation of the president's son by the U.S. attorney for the District of Delaware, a holdover who was appointed by President Trump. You have not interfered with the special counsel investigation initiated by Attorney General Barr into the origin of the FBI investigation of the Trump campaign ties to Russia. And most recently, you've appointed two special counsels to investigate any potential mishandling of classified documents in the possession of former President Trump or President Biden. Unfortunately, too many of my colleagues have turned a blind eye to the actual weaponization of the Justice Department during previous administrations. Take one example. President Trump and his allies attempted to co-opt the department into overturning the results of the 2020 election, a relentless campaign that this committee exhaustively documented in Subverting Justice, a 394-page report. But your actions in the last two years should reassure the American people that the Justice Department should not and does not operate as the servant of any president. The Justice Department has important constitutional responsibilities. It must protect the civil rights of the vulnerable. It must respond to threats to our nation, both domestic and international. It must hold accountable those who violate the laws passed by Congress. We have discussed before, and I will certainly hear again today, some issues of critical importance to the American people. More than 6,800, 6,800 Americans have died from gunfire in the first two months of this year. There have been at least 94 mass shootings, more than one every single day this year in America. I look forward to hearing how the department is using new tools that Congress approved and the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act to, to quell this violence. In March 2021, FBI Director Ray testified under oath before this committee that the threat of domestic terrorism is metastasizing throughout this country. I look forward to hearing your response to that extremist threat. We'll discuss the importance of full implementation of the Bipartisan First Step Act, which is showing meaningful progress in responsibly reducing recidivism and making our criminal justice fairer, system fairer. And we'll discuss the importance of preserving America's civil rights and protecting them from attacks on their bodily autonomy, especially after the Supreme Court Dobbs decision. 
The sunset of Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act this year provides an opportunity to implement much-needed reforms to keep America both safe and free. And the Department must continue to hold steadfast to the principles of equity and access, despite resistance from those who are threatened by an even playing field. As more citizens face greater impediments to exercising their constitutional right to vote, and there's an increase in incidents of hate violence, the Department must defend America's bedrock values. At this point, I turn to my colleague and the ranking member on the Senate Judiciary Committee, Senator Graham. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Welcome, uh, Mr. Attorney General. Appreciate you coming to the committee. And thank you, Ms. Chairman, for having the hearing. Uh, so here's sort of the other side of the story. When he asked Americans, are we on the right track as a nation, about 70% of them say no. Now, why? I think there's a feeling in this country that we're losing control of our streets, that crime is increasing, and the world is a very dangerous people, and people don't feel safe anymore. You talk about the number of deaths from uh, gun violence, uh, certainly something we should be concerned about. But let me tell you something we all should, should be concerned about. Rebecca Keisling, a mother, testified yesterday who lost two sons to fentanyl overdose. Uh, they, they were buying, I think, a Percocet pill, and it, w it was laced with fentanyl, and they died from taking one bill, pill, both of them. She said, as I quote, this is a war, act like it, do something. So 106,000 people died from drug overdoses, 70,000 from fentanyl last year, and it's getting worse. The leading cause of death uh, for Americans age 18 to 45 is death by fentanyl poisoning. What are we doing? What is that something? So I hope we'll recommit ourselves, Mr. Chairman, at this hearing to do something. That like we're at a war because we are. Uh, foreign terrorist organization designation for the Taliban. That's a good thing. Other groups. How about making drug cartels in Mexico and other places foreign terrorist organizations under U.S. law so we can go deeper and prosecute those who help these people poison America? So the bottom line, we're adrift as a nation. We're not taking the crime problem as seriously as we should. The world is on fire. We say that Putin's engaged in crimes against humanity. I agree with that statement. But we're not giving jets to the Ukrainians to defend themselves against the crime. So we've got to up our game. And I hope by this hearing, we will have a recommitment to convince the American people that we're going to keep you safe, that we're going to have policies to deal with the poisoning of America from fentanyl, that we're going to hold Mexico and other countries uh, accountable, that most of this stuff comes from China, and enough is enough. We're going after those who are killing our kids from fentanyl. Gitmo. This administration let two detainees out of Gitmo. There's 30-something left. The recidivism rate is about 25, 30, 40%, depending on you ask. Now is not the time after Afghanistan to be letting people who've been in jail for 20 years because they're so dangerous out of jail. And I hope this administration will not empty Gitmo because the worst thing we could do right now is let people go 
who have been involved in terrorist activities who are still danger or an enemy combatants under international law because of passage of time. So, Mr. Chairman, we all want to work with you on this side, but there is no strategy that I can discern about how to deal with the poisoning of American through fentanyl. Most Americans are worried about the rise in crime, and we need to reassure them we get it, that we're going to do better, that Schedule One designation for fentanyl expires at the end of the year. Mr. Chairman, I know you don't want that to happen. Senator Cotton's been ahead of this before any of us. So if you put arsenic in a pill, knowing somebody's going to take it, why aren't you charged with murder? You would be charged with murder. If you lace a pill with fentanyl, which is probably more lethal than arsenic, why aren't you charged with murder? We're going to have to deter those who are killing young people in America. We're going to have to put countries on notice that you're with us or you're against us when it comes to this scourge of fentanyl. We're going to have to control our border. We're going to have to come up with a rational immigration policy. We're going to have to change our asylum laws because everybody in the world believes if they get one foot in America, they never leave. On many fronts, law and order has broken down here at home, and the world is in chaos. China is watching what we do in Ukraine. And the question for all of us, are we doing enough to combat the threats that we're all living with? And I would say we're woefully inadequate in dealing with the threats that exist against America at home and abroad. And maybe this committee, in a bipartisan fashion, can do something about it. Good morning, Chair Durbin, Ranking Member Graham, and distinguished members of this committee. Every day, the 115,000 employees of the Justice Department work tirelessly to fulfill our mission to uphold the rule of law, to keep our country safe, and to protect civil rights. Every day, our FBI, ATF, and DEA agents and our Deputy U.S. Marshals put their lives on the line to disrupt threats and respond to crises. Every day, department employees counter complex threats to our national security. They fiercely protect the civil rights of our citizens. They pursue accountability for environmental harms. They prosecute crimes that victimize workers, consumers, and taxpayers. And they defend our country's democratic institutions. And every day, in everything they do, the employees of the Justice Department adhere to and uphold the rule of law that is the foundation of our system of government. Thank you for an opportunity to discuss our work. First, upholding the rule of law. When I began my tenure as Attorney General, I said it would be my mission to reaffirm the norms that have guided the Justice Department for nearly 50 years. I do, did so because those norms matter now more than ever to our democracy. The health of our democracy requires that the Justice Department treat like cases alike and that we apply the law in a way that respects the Constitution. It requires that as much as possible, we speak through our work and our filings in court so that we do not jeopardize the viability of our investigations and the civil liberties of our citizens. And the survival of our democracy requires that we stand firmly against attempts to undermine the rule of law, both at home and abroad. 
I am proud of the work that the department has done on each of these fronts. We are strengthening the norms to protect the department's independence and integrity. We are securing convictions for a wide range of criminal conduct related to the January 6th attack on the Capitol. We are disrupting, investigating, and prosecuting violence and threats of violence targeting those who serve the public. And we are working closer than ever with our Ukrainian partners in defense of democracy, justice, and the rule of law. We will continue to do so for as long as it takes. Second, keeping our country safe. The Justice Department is using every resource at our disposal to keep our country safe. We are working to counter, disrupt, and prosecute threats posed by nation states, terrorist groups, radicalized individuals, and cybercriminals. And together with our partners across the country, we are continuing to combat the rise in violent crime that began in 2020. All 94 of our U.S. Attorney's offices are working alongside their state and local partners to pursue district-specific violent crime reduction strategies. The department's grant-making components are providing financial assistance to local law enforcement agencies. At the same time, they are supporting community-led violence intervention efforts. And our law enforcement components are working with state, local, tribal, and territorial counterparts to apprehend the most dangerous fugitives and seize illegal drugs and illegal guns. For example, last year, DEA and its partners seized enough fentanyl lace pills and powder to kill every single American. We are also aggressively prosecuting the crimes that inflict economic harm on the American people. We are prioritizing the prosecution of schemes that impact older Americans and vulnerable populations, as well as schemes involving pandemic and procurement fraud. In our corporate criminal enforcement, we are prioritizing and, secure and securing individual accountability. And we are vigorously enforcing our antitrust laws. Our enforcement actions have already resulted in the blocking or abandonment of mergers that would have stifled competition and harmed consumers. Third, protecting civil rights. Protecting civil rights was a founding purpose of the Justice Department, and it remains an urgent priority. The Department's storied Civil Rights Division has been at the forefront of efforts to protect the right to vote, ensure constitutional policing, and enforce federal statutes prohibiting discrimination in all of its forms. But now, protecting civil rights is also the responsibility of every Justice Department employee every single day. We are working across components to combat hate crimes and improve hate crimes reporting. In the wake of the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe and Casey, the Department has pulled together to protect reproductive freedom under federal law. And the Department recognizes that communities of color, indigenous communities, and low-income communities often bear the brunt of harm caused by environmental crime, pollution, and climate change. So we are prioritizing cases that will have the greatest impact on the communities most burdened by those harms. I am proud of the work of the Department's employees, the work they have done to uphold the rule of law, to keep our country safe, and to protect civil rights. The Department's career workforce has demonstrated extraordinary resilience after years of unprecedented challenges. They have conducted themselves with the utmost integrity without regard to any partisan or other inappropriate influences, and they have done their work 
with a singular commitment to the public we all serve. The employees of the Justice Department are dedicated, skilled, and patriotic public servants. It is my honor to represent them here today. Thank you for the opportunity to testify. I look forward to your questions. The Bipartisan Safer Communities Act addressed issues of straw purchasing, which we have discussed before, the terrible death of Ella French, a Chicago policeman, because of the straw purchase made in the state of Indiana, and this situation with the shootings of uh, innocent individuals in Highland Park. I'd like to ask you, what have you seen, if anything, that's changed for the better since we passed our law? Uh, I think it's a very important law, and I'm grateful uh, to the members who uh, sponsored it and to the overall Congress that passed it. It's done several things for us. First of all, it has, as you said, established a standalone crime for straw purchasing and a standalone crime for uh, trafficking in uh, uh, illegal weapons. We have already- Are these being prosecuted? Yes, and in, in both cases, we have already brought uh, trafficking cases. I think we already have two uh, gun trafficking cases and several straw purchasing cases as a consequence of this law. Um, in addition, uh, in addition, um, the law uh, uh, provided for enhanced uh, background checks for people under 21, and we have uh, largely completed the process of uh, making those possible uh, so that juvenile records that disclose um, uh, prohibited conduct or, um, and make somebody a prohibited possessor would now be identified. That's another thing we've done. The statute also provided funds um, under uh, the burn program um, and additional programs uh, for uh, violence intervention and for um, uh, helping states uh, uh, deal with red flag laws so that people who have been um, subject to a court order barring them from obtaining a gun, we would be able to get uh, those um, kind of um, systems provided. And we've already given out grants in both of those areas. Senator Graham uh, basically challenged me, uh, and I accept the challenge, uh, to show as much concern about the gun deaths, to show as much concern about fentanyl deaths in this country, and I want to do that. He noted, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that the number one cause of death, people 18 to 45, is drug overdose. I don't know if it's fentanyl specifically, but a drug overdose. Uh, and I, I know that reality. But the number one cause of death to children under the age of 18 is gun violence in America, too. We can do both. We must do both. So let's address the fentanyl issue for a minute. We had a hearing in this committee two or three weeks ago which talked about the social media platforms and what they are peddling to Americans, particularly to our children across America. There were mothers sitting near where you're sitting today who brought color photographs of their children who died as a result of their trafficking of information on social media. And there's little or no responsibility accepted by these platforms. Section 230 absolves them from civil liability uh, when they broadcast things which harm children, whether it's bullying or harassment or uh, something as basic as this choke challenge, which unfortunately claims the lives of children as well. I think there was a general consensus on this committee, which is saying something, that we need to do something about the social media platforms. And I coincidentally had a meeting uh, just a day or two later with Ann Wiggum from the Drug Enforcement Agency she described for me the sale on the internet and social media platforms of phony drugs, 
uh, Senator Graham made the reference to a person who thought they were buying Percocet and bought fentanyl and died as a result of it. I asked her how common this was. She said, very common. And they have, the sellers even have valet services where they will physically de deliver boxes of these phony drugs. Do you believe that we need to do more to regulate and control the use of social media platforms that are currently exploiting families and children across America? Senator, I agree with both you and uh, Senator Graham with respect to how horrible this situation is. I have personally met uh, with the families of uh, uh, children and teenagers and young adults and uh, even the elderly who have taken these pills, um, uh, often thinking that they're taking Adderall or uh, oxycodone uh, or Percocet, a prescription drug, but when in fact it is filled with fentanyl. Um, and as the DEA administrator's uh, testimony uh, demonstrated, uh, six out of 10 of those pills are a fatal dose. Uh, the cartels that are uh, creating these pills uh, and that are distributing them within the United States uh, are, are the most horrid individuals uh, you can imagine. And unfortunately, um, they are doing it on social media, advertising as if they are prescription pills. So the DEA has a program of going out to the social media companies and urging them um, to advise DEA when they see this um, um, and uh, advising. Ms. Wiggum told me that when they approach the social media and ask for the algorithms so that they can get to the root cause of this death and destruction, the social media platforms plead Section 230 and refuse. What do we do? Uh, well, I think we do have to do something to force the, them to provide information to search their own platform for sales of illegal drugs. We both feel very strongly that this committee needs to be a venue to take on this issue. I hope we have your support and the support of the president when we do that. We certainly have our support with respect to uh, finding a better way to get the social media companies, whether it's civil or criminal, uh, to take their uh, these kind of things off um, uh, their platforms, to search for them, uh, to not use algorithms that recommend them. I totally agree with that. Do you agree that the Wagner uh, organization associated with Russia should be a foreign terrorist organization under U.S. law? I, I think uh, uh, they are um, a uh, organization that's committing war crimes, uh, an organization uh, that's damaging the United States. I think they've already been designated as a trans, uh, 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 yeah. as a um, um, criminal. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, 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 TCO. I'm trying yeah. to get that. I want to go up a notch. Are you okay with I that? I understand. Now, this is a the the way in which uh, determinations are made for with respect to terrorist organizations come through the State Department. They have to make determinations of what the consequence is for countries that are that have them in there. Do you object to me trying to make them a foreign territory? I think I, I don't object. I think though that I would defer in the end to the State I Department gotcha. on this. Yeah, I mean, this is how would you describe the fentanyl problem in America? It's a horrible epidemic. Okay, uh, but it's an epidemic that's been unleashed on purpose by the Sinaloa um, yeah. and the New Generation Jalisco cartels. Okay. Under current law. Fentanyl loses its Schedule One status by the end of the year. You oppose that, I, I assume. I certainly do. Fentanyl, all fentanyl-related um, okay. um, drugs should be scheduled. Do you permanently support mandatory schedule. minimums for people dealing in fentanyl? I think we already have mandatory minimums for people. Do you dealing think this should be increased? Um, I, I think we are, we have more than enough um, ability now to uh, attack this problem. Well, would you agree with me? Whatever we have is not working. 
Well, I, whatever I, we're doing is not working. I, I agree with that because of the number of deaths yeah, that you so, pointed out. So, so the, just keep an open mind that what we got on the books is not working. Um, if somebody gave a pill to another person with arsenic or ricin, could they be charged with murder because that will kill you? Absolutely. Okay, if somebody gave a uh, candy-shaped pill full of fentanyl, <clears throat> could they be charged with murder? Well, they, they can be charged with uh, drug trafficking leading to death. I don't know. I don't think the statute says murder, okay. but it does say um, yes. specifically aims at that. We have brought prosecutions. Yeah. I know having discussed so, this with uh, the U.S. Attorney in Colorado and the U.S. Attorney in the Southern District of New York. Mexican drug cartels, should they be uh, designated foreign terrorist organizations under U.S. law? Yeah, I think it's the, the same answer I gave before. They are already uh, designated in any number of ways and sanctioned by the Treasury. Would you oppose some of us trying to make them foreign terrorist organizations? I wouldn't oppose it, but again, um, I, I want to point out their diplomatic concerns. We need the assistance of Mexico in this and designating. Is Mexico helping us effectively with our fentanyl? Problem? They are helping us, but they could do much more. There's no question about that. Uh, Gitmo, are you familiar with, how, with the Gitmo prison? I haven't been there, if that's what you're asking. No, other, other, I mean, but you know that we have foreign terrorists yeah. housed there, is I that right? I certainly do. Do you agree with me that under the law of war, an enemy combatant properly designated can be held to the end of hostilities? Yes, that's uh, <laughs> the law both of the circuit I stood uh, I right. was on before and the Supreme Court. Right. So do you agree with me that uh, ISIS and al-Qaeda is still at war with us? Yes, I do. So you agree that anybody associated with these organizations could be held indefinitely if they pre present a risk to the American people? I think they could. I think that the determination of whether they present a risk and uh, how they should be dealt with is a determination to be made by the Defense Department, and the yeah. Defense Department is making But legally, they can be held as long as they're a risk, and that could be for the rest of their lives, correct? I think that's right. It obviously depends on the facts of the determination. I totally of agree. Do you believe Russia is committing crimes against humanity? I do. Okay, <clears throat> that's a pretty bold statement. Should we create an international court to support uh, charges of crime of aggression? Do you support that idea? So uh, the United States supports uh, um, um, what is now being developed in The Hague, uh, sponsored by Eurojust, um, uh, looking into the possibility of creating that court. There are concerns that we have to take into account with respect to how that might deal with our own service members and other circumstances. We have to be sure that the appropriate guardrails are up, but we support any number of different ways in which um, uh, war crimes, crimes against humanity, um, and the potential for crimes against aggression. Finally, let's uh, end where we started, fentanyl. If this drug is killing more Americans than car wrecks and gun violence combined, do you believe that the policies we have today, in effect, are working. I've been in, involved in uh, the problem of uh, drug crime and drug trafficking for more than 40 years, including... That, a, that, that's not my question. It's not how long you've been involved. Are they working? They are not stopping fentanyl from killing Americans, if that's the question you you're asking. You say they're woefully inadequate to the task. We are putting all the resources that Congress provides to us into doing this. The DEA is doing uh, we are starting at the precursor level when uh, precursors are sent from China to Mexico. We are then working oh, on attacking the, the labs. I, um, methane is probably the, one of the most dangerous uh, greenhouse gases. We see 
plumes of it miles long floating across the United States. Um, it takes multiple levels of enforcement, federal, state, local, and private, to uh, address these massive leaks. Um, what can you tell me you are doing to assure that there is that coordinated multi-jurisdictional enforcement operation in place? You are exactly right. Um, and we now have uh, the benefit of uh, overhead commercial satellites, which are able to actually see methane um, with respect to the infrared spectrum. Um, so we, have we are in the process of establishing a working group uh, between our Environment and Natural Resources Division and the Justice Department, the EPA, uh, the Interior Department, and um, affected U.S. attorney's offices across the country uh, to make use of the tools, the scientific tools we have, uh, and also some of the funding that was provided in the uh, Bipartisan Infrastructure Act. That is good news, and I hope that that effort will include advisory participation from state law enforcement, from local law enforcement, and from private litigant experts in this space. Well, all, all of our work in the law enforcement field involves um, partnering with uh, state and local law enforcement. Um, always happy to have expertise uh, provided, but um, our law enforcement working groups are confined to law enforcement as a general matter. I just got a um, document from a insurance publication uh, that says, I'm just reading here, at least 1,375 climate change-related lawsuits have already been brought in the United States. These include suits filed by local municipalities and by states. Rhode Island is one of them, uh, as well as shareholder suits. Given all of that government litigation taking place in this space, uh, I would ask you, is there anyone looking at federal DOJ involvement in that area uh, in the Department of Justice? And if so, who is that person? So I, 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 I really don't, um, as a general matter, I want to um, um, describe our internal um, um, decision-making processes on these. I can assure you that the Environmental and Natural Resources Division has taken a very close look at this question. But beyond that, I really can't say. Okay. Well, you may recall that the last time the Department of Justice took a really close look at this question, they got the standard of decision wrong, uh, applied I, a criminal standard of review to civil litigation. So uh, I hope that the um, seriousness of the look that's been taken, what I would like to call an honest look, is actually, in fact, taking place, because the record from before your time is not very convincing. I, I agree with you, uh, Senator, that the criminal standard beyond a reasonable doubt is not appropriate for uh, fraud cases. Yeah. Correct. Um, and uh, with, so, I'm sorry, for civil fraud civil cases. Civil fraud cases, yeah. correct. Criminal cases. OLC says that they don't ordinarily review opinions of their own even after they've been discredited by Article Three judges, unless they've been asked. And you're one of the people who can ask them. So I'm asking you, will you ask them to review the OLC opinions that are now publicly on the books of the Department of Justice that have been discredited by uh, specific findings of Article III judges? They relate to absolute immunity. So um, my understanding of the uh, longstanding pro uh, process at OLC uh, is uh, not to reevaluate old opinions unless they are now relevant for a, for an, a current controversy. That's the um, problem. And um, um, I, I also believe that their process is that if a 
uh, court of uh, ultimate jurisdiction determines that uh, that they are wrong, then they will evaluate it. I, my understanding of so the case So Katanji Brown-Jackson was one of the authors of one of the opinions that said the OLC opinions were wrong. She's a pretty credible judge, I think. She's now sitting on the United States Supreme Court. And those OLC opinions hang out there for review by other executive agencies, even if there's no direct ask to the department that would trigger that OLC review. So, it's sort of like executive branch jurisprudence that sits on its own, independent from Article III jurisprudence. And somehow we've got to figure out how to connect those two things, because at the moment you have OLC opinions that appear to be flat out wrong by the determinations made by those whose job it is to say what the law is, the Article III judges, and there's no effort to ask them in that fairly unique circumstance to go back and, and fix it. So I, I, again, I think all the circumstances you're talking about are about individual judges, sometimes a single judge on a court of appeals, sometimes a, a judge uh, speaking in dicta, uh, but no decision. If there were a decision of the United States Supreme Court that was inconsistent, or of a court of appeals, uh, they, I believe OLC would reevaluate. Otherwise, there are lots of uh, uh, judges who criticize uh, OLC opinions, um, um, and the Justice Department, as uh, a former judge, that's perfectly appropriate for Article III judges to do. Um, but we have to allocate our resources to cases uh, where, uh, uh, which are active cases. Uh, and that's what OLC does. Uh, do you commit to me, this committee and the Senate as a whole, that any retaliatory conduct against whistleblowers uh, will be uh, uh, disciplined? I, I do, Senator, and, and uh, you know well, uh, uh, more than any other member of this committee, that I've been a staunch uh, supporter of uh, whistleblowers and of the False Claims Act uh, all, during the entire period of my role as a judge as well. I'm going to set up a hypothetical pat, uh, fact pattern for you and, and ask you to tell me how you would handle it. Uh, the Justice Department and the FBI receive information from over a dozen sources. That's the first one. Second, those sources provide similar information about potential criminal conduct relating to a single individual. And third, that information was shared with the department and FBI over a period of years. According to department policy and procedures, what steps would the department take to determine the truth and accuracy of the information provided by those sources? I'm sorry, these are whistleblowers, so they're internal sources, is that what you're saying? I'm not sure. Doesn't matter where that comes from, just the fact that I wanna know you got that information, how, how would you go about handling it? Yeah. So um, reports of uh, wrongdoing um, are uh, normally re reported to whatever the appropriate department component is. It might be uh, U.S. attorney's offices in the district in which it uh, allegedly took place. It might be uh, to the directly uh, to FBI components uh, and to FBI task forces. Um, um, in cases involving whistleblowers, of course, there are specific provisions uh, uh, for um, uh, making um, uh, complaints to the uh, Inspector General's Office or the Office of Professional Responsibility uh, or um, the Inspections Division of the FBI. Uh, recent lawfully protected whistleblower disclosures to my office indicate that the Justice Department and the FBI had at one time over a dozen sources that provided potentially criminal information relating to Hunter Biden. 
The alleged volume and similarity of the information would demand that the Justice Department investigate the truth and accuracy of the information. According to uh, what, accordingly, what steps has the Justice Department taken to determine the truth and accuracy of information provided? Uh, Congress and the American people, I think, have a right to know. Um, so, as the committee well knows from my confirmation hearing, I promise uh, to leave. I promised to leave the matter of Hunter Biden in the hands of the U.S. Attorney uh, for the District of Delaware, who was appointed uh, in the previous administration. So, any information like that should have gone, uh, or should, or should have uh, gone to that U.S. Attorney's offices and the FBI squad that's working uh, with him. I have pledged not to interfere. Uh, with that investigation, and I uh, have carried through on my pledge. In April 2022, you testified to Senator Haggerty uh, that the Hunter Biden investigation was insulated from political interference because it was assigned to, as you just now told me, to the Delaware Attorney's Office. However, that could be misleading because without special counsel authority, he could need permission of, of another U.S. attorney in certain circumstances to bring charges outside the District of uh, Delaware. I'd like clarification from you with respect to these concerns. Uh, the, the, the U.S. attorney in Delaware has been uh, advised that he has full authority uh, to, to make those kind of uh, referrals that you're talking about or to bring cases in other jurisdictions if he feels it's necessary. And I will assure that if he does, uh, he will be able to do that. Does the Delaware U.S. Attorney lack independent charging authority over certain criminal allegations against the President's son outside of the District of Delaware? Um, he would have to bring, if it's in another district, he would have to bring the case in another district. But as I said, uh, I have promised to ensure that he's able to carry out uh, his investigation and that he be able to run it. And if he uh, needs to bring it in another jurisdiction, he will have full authority to do that. If you provided the Delaware U.S. Attorney with special counsel authority, isn't it true that he wouldn't need permission of another U.S. Attorney to bring charges? Oh, it's a kind of a complicated question. Um, if uh, uh, under the regulations, that kind of act he would have to bring to me, uh, under, to the Attorney General under the regulations, those kind of um, um, charging decisions would have to be brought. I would then have to, um, um, you know, authorize it and uh, 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 permit uh, it to be brought in another jurisdiction. Um, and that is exactly what I promised to do here already, um, that if he needs to do uh, bring a case in another jurisdiction, he will have my full authority to do that. Uh, has the Delaware U.S. Attorney sought permission from uh, uh, permission of another U.S. Attorney's Office, such as in the District of Columbia or in California, to bring charges? If so, was it denied? So I, I don't know the answer to that, I do, uh, and I don't want to get into the internal elements of decision-making by the U.S. Attorney, but he has been advised that uh, he is not to be denied uh, anything that he needs, and uh, if that were to happen, um, it should uh, ascend through the department's ranks, and I have not heard anything uh, from that office to suggest uh, that uh, they are not able to do everything that the U.S. Attorney wants to do. If the Justice Department received information that foreign persons had evidence of improper or unlawful financial payment uh, paid to elected officials or other politically exposed persons, and those payments may have influenced policy decisions, would that pose a national 
security concern and demand a full investigation. And when Ray was here, he seemed to answer that question uh, in, in uh, uh, that it was a national security concern. I want your opinion. Uh, in the way that you're, if I, if I follow the question exactly right, if it's an agent of a foreign government asking um, uh, someone uh, and paying someone to uh, do things to support that foreign government in secret, yes, uh, I definitely think that would be a national security problem. Can you talk about how the department's um, approach to focusing on violent crime is centered on partnerships uh, with local agencies and what you're doing? Yeah, I, I want to um, uh, begin by saying that we well recognize uh, that there is a terrible problem of violent crime. Uh, very first, uh, and, and the reason violent crime is important to the to the federal government um, is because it uh, it makes it impossible for people to go about their ordinary lives uh, and carry out their civic responsibilities and their family responsibilities without uh, fear. So the department is uh, very seized with this problem. One of the very first things I did after becoming attorney general, uh, this was in I think in May is to uh, uh, establish an anti-violent crime strategy, um, which involves the kind of partnerships that you're talking about and, uh, and the kind of individual uh, district by district determination that U.S. Attorney Luger has made in his own district as to what is most necessary in that district to fight violent crime. Okay. Uh, our plan involves uh, three sets of partnerships. Uh, one is among all federal law enforcement, FBI, DEA, uh, marshals, uh, ATF, and uh, Homeland Security and other agencies so that there is no turf fighting, that we all work together in joint task forces, that those partnerships at the second level be expanded to state and local uh, law enforcement, police, and sheriffs. Uh, there are not enough uh, federal law enforcement in the world to deal with the problem of violent crime. This is largely a state and local issue and problem, and we are they are our force multipliers, and we are their resource and expertise multipliers. So in every uh, jurisdiction, the U.S. Attorney is responsible for creating a task force of federal and state. And then finally, there has to be relationships with the community. Um, as a, a former violent crime prosecutor myself, I know we don't get witnesses to testify in violent crime cases unless the community trusts us. The community doesn't trust us if, we don't, if law enforcement doesn't engage with them. Um, show that we're being honest and transparent about our work um, and, and through our funding mechanisms provide grants for uh, violence interruption and violence in intervention. Um, you mentioned law enforcement. Um, you noted in your testimony that the COPS office has dedicated $224 million to help law enforcement. Senator Murkowski and I um, have uh, long championed the COPS hiring program through the COPS Reauthorization Act. Um, I assume you continue to support that and continue to support the work that needs to be done to address police officer recruitment and retention issues. Yeah, absolutely. In the previous fiscal year, I think we had $100 million um, to distribute, which we did for cops hiring, uh, for recruitment and retention. Um, in the next fiscal year, we expect over $200 million for the same purpose. Um, we know how difficult uh, police departments are, uh, how much difficulty they're having with respect to recruitment and retention. And we are trying to do everything we can, both in terms of grants and in terms of expertise to help. Okay, very good. Uh, Minnesota, currently a backlog of around 3,800 DNA cases awaiting testing. Uh, Senator Cornyn and I are working together on the uh, Debbie Smith Act and 
Um, would that help law enforcement have the tools they need? This just actually, these numbers just came out yesterday. So it's yeah, very no, timely. Absolutely. I think that that needs to be re-upped and uh, we are very strongly supportive of um, um, providing more funds to state and locals for DNA rape kits uh, and, and, and thing, forensic analysis and the like. Okay, I want to leave two minutes for antitrust, so just one quick other follow-up. Senator Campido and I asked what steps the department has taken to stop the trafficking of fentanyl on the dark web. I know some of my colleagues have asked about fentanyl. Any update you want to give on that, or you could give it in writing afterward? Well, I'll give you more detail in writing. As you know, we had a major dark, uh, takedown of two different uh, dark web um, websites, which were trafficking in fentanyl. Um, and we are continuing to investigate uh, uh, using our cyber tools to take those um, um, websites down and to arrest the uh, operators. Could you talk a little bit about beyond that, um, what you think uh, legal changes, law changes would be helpful as we're seeing a changing um, internet economy and on the privacy kid side, which Senator Durbin asked about, we haven't seen any changes to our laws, but also on the antitrust side, on the marketing, on the self-preferencing of their products, whether it's Amazon uh, or Apple, we haven't seen changes. And Senator Blackburn and Senator Blumenthal have worked together on the App Store bill. Talk about what you'd like to see to give you the tools uh, to better combat the issues that we're seeing. So uh, first, uh, gratitude for the uh, merger um, uh, uh, fees increase. It, it, gives us the opportunity to um, uh, staff up and uh, uh, be able to uh, have enough uh, lawyers and economists uh, to oppose uh, private sector, which is uh, way more than we do. And we still have fewer um, 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 antitrust employees than we had in the 70s, uh, the, the last time I was in the Justice Department. With respect you to- You have the biggest companies the world has ever seen to try to deal with. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, exactly. On the legislation side, um, uh, um, we have supported, I, I think it's called the Online Choice, uh, American Innovation and Online Line Choice Act. Good. Did they get it right? Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Um, and the Open Apps Act, um, I think that's close to the correct title. Um, um, has uh, We've had testimony um, by um, uh, Assistant Attorney General uh, Cantor with respect to the Open Apps Act. Uh, we are always interested uh, in working with Congress uh, uh, to uh, modernize uh, the um, antitrust laws to take account of the kind of uh, network effects uh, that the, uh, and uh, two-sided platforms uh, uh, that we now have in our high-technology companies. Are you familiar with the strategy of the transnational criminal organizations that are flooding migrants across the border, overwhelming Border Patrol and other law enforcement authorities so that then the drug traffickers can move illicit drugs across the border? Are you familiar with that, what uh, I, I would call a business model? I am, and I set up specifically directed the establishment of a task force on anti-smuggling and anti-human trafficking for just the reason you said. Uh, it involves our uh, Civil Rights Division, our Criminal Division, and uh, the U.S. Attorney's offices all across, along the border, as well as our um, uh, offices in the uh, uh, Northern Triangle companies, uh, countries and uh, Mexico. But I think you also told us at the hearing, uh, your confirmation hearing, you repeatedly said that the executive branch cannot simply decide based on policy disagreements that it will not enforce the law. Is that still your position? Yes, it is, Senator. Your charging memorandum says that prosecutors can exercise their discretion to charge less than the most serious offense because you don't like the mandatory minimum sentences that Congress has, uh, has passed, correct? 
No, Senator. This is a question of allocating our resources and focusing them on violent crime. Uh, later on, I thought you said I thought you said that uh, your job was to enforce the law with regard to without regard to policy differences. It's not a question of policy differences. It's a question of the resources. You we don't have, have enough money. You don't have enough, enough people. people. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough jails. We don't have enough uh, judges. Um, well, but, you've arrogated to yourself the 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 decision to make policy by saying that in spite of the fact that there are mandatory minimum sentences for many of these drug crimes which are now causing untold death and destruction across America, you're telling prosecutors don't charge those if they involve a mandatory minimum sentence. With, with respect, Senator, the memorandum makes clear that that general uh, uh, analysis doesn't apply in violent crime, doesn't apply in drug trafficking, doesn't apply in cases in which there's injury. So you're cherry picking which cases that you will charge with a mandatory minimum sentence and I, not applying them uniformly and charging the most serious crime if, that can be proven if, at if trial. We apply it to every single crime, we will not be able to focus our resources on violent crime and significant drug trafficking, on the cartels, on the people who are uh, killing people with fentanyl. So the purpose here is to focus the attention of our prosecutors and agents on the things that are damaging the American people in the largest possible respect. That's what the um, what this policy says. At 108,000 roughly Americans who died as a result of drug overdoses last year, 71,000 roughly of fentanyl overdoses. Do you consider your current policies successful? We, as I said um, in answer to another question, we have a huge epidemic of fentanyl problem uh, created by uh, intentional acts by the cartels. We are doing everything we can within our resources to fight that. We have our a uh, DEA uh, working uh, to, uh, to prevent uh, transfer of uh, precursors into Mexico to capture the labs. Um, uh, to, to extradite the cartel leaders, to arrest them in the United States. We are focusing on fentanyl with enormous urgency. I have personally twice traveled to Mexico to try to get greater cooperation from the Mexicans on exactly the problem you're talking about. I have separately talked twice in person with the Mexican Attorney General for exactly the problem that you're talking about. We are focusing on this with enormous urgency. This is a priority of the Justice Department, but this is a whole of government problem. The border is a responsibility of the Department of Homeland Security. We do what we can do with respect to the jurisdictions that we have. On the Wagner Group, uh, Senator Graham and I are the principal sponsors along with Senator Whitehouse of a measure to declare the Wagner Group a foreign terrorist organization. You would agree that assuming that the State Department goes along with us, that it is worthwhile doing. Yeah, look, uh, Mr. Prigozhin, who runs this thing, is, in my view, a war criminal. And uh, maybe that's inappropriate for me to say with, uh, as a judge before getting all the evidence. But I think we have more than sufficient evidence at this point for me to feel that way. And uh, I believe that that group, uh, which is responsible uh, for the attacks on Ukrainians in the Donbass, um, uh, including uh, by bringing in prisoners uh, from Russian uh, prison camps uh, as cannon fodder. It's just un it's unfathomable what they are doing. And everything we can do to stop them, we should do. Can you commit to the Department of Justice will support the Ukrainian prosecutor who is hard at work right now in trying to bring to justice those war criminals? Not only will commit, I commit, but I'll tell you I've done that. I've met twice uh, in person. 
uh, with um, the current Prosecutor General, Prosecutor Kostin. I met in Ukraine with the previous uh, Prosecutor General. Uh, we have established a uh, war crimes uh, task force in the Justice Department to assist uh, our, um, um, our forensic um, agents are on the ground now in um, Ukraine to assist, uh, to teach, to assist in the development of the forensics necessary to do those. I have met with um, um, Eurojust uh, and, uh, to, uh, and Europol uh, to work on the, uh, help them uh, develop the kind of uh, infrastructure necessary to prosecute these cases. You, you have our wholehearted support in your efforts here. The American public right now is hearing about investigations involving uh, COVID, the sources of COVID in China, conclusions with low confidence, high degree of confidence. Can you, as an official in charge of intelligence and interpretations of intelligence, explain to the American people what it means for there to be low confidence or higher confidence when there are conclusions about, for example, the sources of COVID, whether it came from natural sources in China or from a lab leak, what does that designation mean? Um, I would have to say, it, to, to my knowledge, I mean, these are uh, our labels that are applied uh, by the intelligence community. Uh, so it's a, uh, while, while I read, read the results, I'm not sure um, I can exactly define it, but I believe it is just as you would think. Uh, that if asked to make a uh, uh, decision and say uh, yes or no, uh, you say yes or no, depending on the degree of confidence that you have that your yes or no answer is correct. So low confidence means you think the answer is yes, but you don't have high, you know, you have low confidence in it. Medium is medium. You might answer, we don't know at all, but that's not what, uh, that's not what you're asking about. So it's more than a hunch or a guess, but not quite... Yeah. Yeah. something to take to the bank. Yeah, so there's a, a lot of, um, of criminal law um, um, from ter ranging from Terry stops to probable cause to convictions. Uh, there, I don't think there is any law in the intelligence community that defines those specifically. You, you wouldn't sanction a search or an arrest based on low confidence? No, a search and arrest require probable cause. That's all I can say. Or do we have adequate resources being devoted to hate crime investigation and prosecution and are there any uh, uh, solutions that you believe we should be considering to help us help you do this job? I'm grateful for the question. And obviously, if anybody ever wants to give me more resources in any area of the Justice Department's responsibility, I'm happy to take them. Um, we have been focused uh, like a laser on hate crime since I first came into the department. Uh, I think my memorandum to the department um, um, to develop a anti-hate crime task force was one of the very first memorandums I issued. Um, as we were making our developments in that respect, the, um, uh, uh, the uh, Anti-Hate Crime uh, Act was passed by the Congress, uh, providing us with additional funding, uh, which was very helpful. Um, I've established a hate crimes coordinator uh, in the department, and each of our U.S. attorney's offices is on the case. Uh, looking into these matters, and the uh, FBI has elevated uh, hate crimes and civil rights violations uh, into their highest band of uh, threats. 
So I would say we are examining this uh, with the highest degree of urgency that's possible, and we are putting the uh, our resources of our department uh, into stopping these heinous acts. Okay, well, appreciate that. And in addition to resources, if there's specific uh, policy changes uh, or initiatives that you'd like for us to consider, uh, uh, please I, bring them forward. I, uh, my staff would be happy to, to work with yours um, if you have ideas in this regard. I think we're pretty, right now, I feel like we have the uh, statutes and um, uh, techniques uh, required, uh, but uh, there's always room for improvement in everything, and we would be happy to work with you in that regard. Now, the second area I wanted to uh, raise is uh, the issue of labor exploitation of children, and in particular, migrant children. Um, Hope and you caught a recent New York Times uh, report of their investigation, which uh, put a spotlight on the vast use of migrant child labor across states and across industries. I was particularly alarmed to learn that some of these children are working full adult shifts in food processing facilities and factories after school. Children are being placed in occupationally dangerous situations where they're putting their lives at risk and given a little break from grueling work. And many of these children were formerly under the care of the Department of Health and Human Services as unaccompanied minors, but have not received adequate follow-up services once released to the care of a sponsor. And I ask uh, consent to enter this article into the record. Without objection. Now, the Biden administration on Monday did announce that it will direct agencies to crack down on the use of child labor and as part of the new initiative, it's the Department of Labor who will investigate and enforce penalties on these unscrupulous employers and make criminal referrals as needed. Now, the Department of Labor is also going to lead an interagency task force to combat child labor exploitation. So my question is, will the Department of Justice be coordinating with the Department of Labor on criminal referrals uh, and possibly join this interagency task force? Uh, we, uh, of course, I read the same article that you're talking about. I was horrified uh, by the reporting. Um, um, our um, uh, criminal uh, division and our uh, civil rights division are reaching out uh, to the Labor Department, HHS, uh, to try to be of assistance as much as possible. There's uh, only a limited number of uh, criminal statutes that would apply. Uh, I would point out we do have a uh, forced labor uh, task force. Um, which uh, 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 has been very active in general, and it includes problems with respect to children, obviously. Um, and I met with them uh, the other uh, just yesterday, and they have assured me that they would be reaching out as well. Our bill is now law, and the department has a deadline upcoming next month to present a plan to Congress for upgrades to strengthen these security systems at federal prisons. So my first question for you, Attorney General, is whether the department is on track to meet that deadline. Uh, Senator, first I want to say we're grateful for the work you and your committee did on this matter, and I know that you've met with the director of the Bureau of Prisons, who is uh, adopting the recommendations that you've made. Um, I believe we are on track uh, to satisfy the requirements of the statute, but I'd be very happy to be sure that uh, she or our staff meet with your staff uh, to ensure that your expectations are being met. The department announced in September of 2021 that it was conducting a uh, civil investigation, a pattern of practice investigation into conditions of confinement in Georgia's state prisons. So that was about 18 months ago. Uh, and the abysmal conditions in Georgia's state prisons 
which, as in the case of federal facilities, threaten public safety in the surrounding communities and are a major public safety hazard, uh, those failures of management, in my view, in Georgia's state prison system are appalling. They're life-threatening and have, I believe, resulted in loss of life and they undermine community safety. So I, I want to ensure that the department remains committed to seeing that investigation through and uh, bringing results that can be made public and result in change. So the Civil Rights Division is uh, charged with um, uh, these uh, pattern of practice investigations. They are very committed uh, to ensuring that the conditions are changed that you're talking about. Uh, these pattern of practice investigations normally do end in a public report uh, to, to the um, uh, state agency involved and to the public at large. Um, I don't know the specifics of how the, uh, this, this investigation is going, but I can assure you the Civil Rights Division uh, is fully behind this investigation. But the investigation is ongoing, it's proceeding, and it's going to get a result, yes? Yes. And I want to ask you, uh, Attorney General, uh, whether the department will commit to making DICRA data available to the public. Yeah. So um, uh, first, on, on the first part of your question, we're obviously having trouble getting full reporting. This has to be voluntary on the part of the states. I, I believe the statute did give us some appropriations, which we were able to use as incentives for more, for more reporting. We're very charged with the importance of, of doing that. Um, I, I have to say I don't, I'm not familiar with the specifics of DICRA. If it provides for public reporting of the numbers we have, then we should be providing it. I don't know whether it does or not. I just am not familiar with it at that level. You've got a lot on your plate, Attorney General. I recognize that. This is a serious concern for me and for the Senate. Uh, and uh, I did not, after those investigations, come away with the impression that there was sufficient attention at a high level being committed to ensuring that this is being fixed. So will you commit to getting up to speed and uh, taking this uh, matter personally into your portfolio? Yeah, I will. You now have high level attention if you didn't have it before. Why do you think investments in things like violent intervention strategies have been so effective? Yeah, so uh, I appreciate your asking that. I was just in uh, uh, St. Louis uh, uh, um, and East St. Louis to look into the way in which these violent, uh, violence intervention strategies have been effective. They are part of our whole of department approach to violent crime, which involves both uh, law enforcement and uh, support for state and local law enforcement and grants to state and local law enforcement, but also uh, um, grants to communities to prevent the violence in the first place. Uh, there are many kinds of these um, uh, uh, community violence interruption programs and intervention programs. They generally rely on having credible messengers of people who the community trusts for any number of variety of reasons, who go into the community, try to, to explain to the community uh, that the police are on their side, that they need to um, uh, be witnesses, uh, be supportive. Um, and to develop trust between law enforcement and the communities. That, that's the bottom line of all this. I co-lead the Law Enforcement Caucus with Senator Cornyn of Texas. Uh, one of the things we've recently been talking about is the Nix Denial Notification Act, which Senator Cornyn and I led last year, the president signed into law. It requires federal law enforcement to notify state and local authorities when someone fails a background check, when they lie and try to buy a gun. It's been in place since September, and we've already seen 44,000 denial notifications go to local law enforcement. 
Um, can you just speak briefly um, to the value of this information for local law enforcement to prevent dangerous individuals from being able to acquire weapons? All right, well, th this particular uh, example is really the nub here. Uh, somebody who is uh, not lawfully allowed to uh, get a gun who goes to try to get one anyway, uh, I'd say there's a higher probability that person wants to do something nefarious with that gun. And uh, uh, now, thanks to this uh, legislation, the state and local police will know about that uh, and will be able to investigate to determine what it was that person was about to do with an unlawful weapon. Uh, I'm chairing the intellectual property subcommittee of this committee in this Congress. And as you know, I'm very concerned about the threat uh, of foreign nations um, to our uh, innovation and our intellectual property. I think it's important that our response to this is coordinated across the whole government. So I was glad to learn about your collaboration with the Department of Commerce, in particular on the disruptive technology strike force. Um, could you just speak to your strategy uh, jointly with the Secretary of Commerce for protecting American innovation in coordination with other agencies? All right. Well, uh, on that particular task force is uh, uh, very focused on new uh, technologies, AI, for example, uh, very advanced uh, microchips, um, which could be very dangerous, obviously, in the hands of an adversary, uh, which are being uh, exported um, and are evading export controls. So what we're working with the um, a part of the Commerce Department, which uh, uh, enforces export controls, and uh, on our side, on the National Security Division, uh, to identify these kinds of transfers and to prevent them from happening. You know, a very good example is what's happened on the battlefield in Ukraine. Uh, we're getting uh, some of the uh, quadrocopters and other kinds of drones, uh, and even some of the missiles that are, are landing in Ukraine turn out to have uh, parts that came from American manufacturers, and we have to find out how they were able to evade um, our export controls. Do you agree that white supremacist terrorists pose a significant threat to our country and especially to racial and religious minorities and the LGBTQ plus community? Yes, uh, as the FBI reported in, in that um, report, you're talking about racially motivated violent extremists as a group are, are the most dangerous uh, of the domestic violent extremist groups. And within that, the white supremacists are the most dangerous and most least lethal, yes. So what, what more can the department do to combat, to combat this rise in these kinds of domestic terrorist activities? Well, we've, we've uh, allocated a significant amount of resources for this uh, purpose. Our, the National Security Division uh, has stood up a domestic violent, uh, violent extremist unit uh, to further track uh, and try and interdict these actions. The FBI is treating this with enormous seriousness of purpose. Um, and we are going to uh, do everything we can to uh, deter uh, and prosecute. I want to jump into the executive order from uh, uh, President Biden on policing. It took really important steps uh, to ensure that federal law enforcement agencies are engaging the best practices to make themselves and the public safer. Some of these policies the department has adopted and is making great progress on, including limitations on chokeholds, guidelines for no-knock warrants, which is a extraordinarily dangerous uh, for police officers themselves. Um, and a cleaner standard for the use of deadly force. Uh, even the Trump EO, EO, though, included the need uh, for us to have a database that is, uh, uh, I guess, called an accountability database to serve as a repository for officer misconduct records within the next eight months, uh, which is now this past January. Trump's executive order, which was issued in June of 2020, also directed the Eternal Attorney General to create 
such a database to collect this information? What's the status now on that? Yeah, there's a working group run by the Deputy Attorney General to stand this up. Um, as you can imagine, there are difficulties with respect to getting reporting and uh, also difficulties with respect to defining what a determination has been made. Uh, but we are seized with this and uh, we are full, working full speed ahead to get this done. I'm grateful and, and hope we can continue to communicate on that. It's, an, it's invaluable. And uh, the EO directed you to encourage state and local agencies to contribute to the database. How's that going? Yeah, um, it, it, we, are, we have made outreach to all the major uh, law enforcement organizations who support this proposition. We are making outreach to state and local law enforcement. We are making progress. Uh, I, I can't really say more than that at this point, not because I don't want to say, but because I don't know. Okay. Uh, the Biden administration, uh, in cooperation with the Congress acting in a bipartisan manner, has put significant amounts of money uh, into the COPS uh, grant program. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I think under the last Congress, it was one of the higher, highest rating, highest amounts of money given to programs that help local police departments. Really proud uh, that President Biden did that. I I'm just curious what processes are in place to ensure that the funded funds are being used uh, for intended purposes. Does the department audit those grants? Yeah, uh, whenever a government agency gives out grants, there's always a risk, uh, and so we have pretty tight, very tight uh, auditing and uh, review uh, processes for these grants. And, and do you have the resources you need to adequately audit the grants in your uh, estimation, or is that something that might uh, Congress might act to give you the more resources. Well, I'm going to say again to you what I've said before, whenever anybody wants to offer me more resources, I'm happy to have them. Um, but I think we're, uh, we're capable of doing what uh, the Congress wanted us to do with the resources we have right now. I, I, I appreciate that uh, wise response. Can you confirm that the department will not revoke individuals released under the CARES Act uh, for minor violations? We always know there's so-called status violations where somebody might uh, cross a county line or do something that is a technical violation, which is often minor. They're not a threat to public um, uh, safety. Uh, can you uh, confirm again that the department will not revoke individuals that are released under the CARES Act for these so-called status violations once the public health emergency expires? Yeah, so um, uh, just to give the full context, um, the, the CARES Act allowed us to put people in home confinement who we ordinarily would not have been able to do because of the length of time remaining on their sentence. Um, the, a question was raised whether, that, uh, whether those people would have to go back um, after uh, the expiration, which is now going to be in, in May, I believe. Um, um, the Office of Legal Counsel um, interpreting the statute uh, found that they would not have to go back, uh, that all that was necessary was that the Attorney General put them into um, uh, home confinement. When I say the Attorney General, I mean the Justice Department and the Bureau of Prisons, um, and that they could remain subject to what the normal rules are on having to go back. So if somebody uh, uh, commits the kind of violations that would normally require somebody to go back, uh, to prison from home confinement, uh, those would apply, but no special rules uh, to people who came under the uh, CARES Act. And let me also say in support of what you said, there has now uh, been a, a enough time to have statistical data on recidivism as found uh, that uh, the people out on the CARES Act, uh, the, the number of, uh, of uh, serious crimes committed is uh, extremely tiny and, uh, um, um, and not of, uh, of concern. All right, on July 16th, my last question, uh, my penultimate question, on July 16th, uh, 2022, you said that the Justice Department is examining 
marijuana policy, and we'll be addressing the issue in the days ahead. And in October of 2022, President Biden urged an expeditious review of the schedule of cannabis and directed individuals uh, federally incarcerated for cannabis possession be expunged. Um, what is the current state of the review of cannabis at the Justice Department, and when can we expect uh, policy changes on this important issue? I think every, everything that you said is correct. The uh, uh, president commuted sentences, um, um, and this is still working its way through the system to get the final certificates of commutation, but that, that, that is uh, accomplished. Um, the HHS is uh, working on the question of um, uh, scientific analysis of uh, marijuana. Um, and um, within the department, um, we are uh, still working on a, uh, a marijuana policy for the department. I have to say that the crack powder thing came first in, in, in my list of things that had to be done first, uh, but that was accomplished, as, as you already know. And I think that uh, it's fair to expect uh, what I said at my confirmation hearing with respect to marijuana policy, that it will be very close uh, to uh, uh, what was done in the Cole Memorandum, Deputy Attorney General Cole in the Obama administration. But we're not, we're not quite done with that yet. You have taken important steps uh, to protect election workers and the right to vote, uh, and that includes by establishing an elec uh, the Election Threats Task Force. Uh, let me ask you, what steps did the department take in 2022 election to defend our democracy and the election workforce? And are there any lessons learned that can help us going forward? So we, we have, as, as you note, established an election threats uh, work uh, task force aimed at investigating um, threats against state and local election workers. Uh, the FBI has been tracking uh, those kind of threats that come in on, on, on their tip line and making those investigations. There have been a number of prosecutions and convictions uh, regarding those threats. Um, I'm not sure if that fully answers the question, but that's what we're doing. That's good. And, you know, there, there's, from here, time to time, there's threats to local election officials that might happen in one state and then it might be another. Uh, what things can you do to be helpful in responding to specific threats against election workers? Yeah, so um, um, obviously the first line of defense are the state and local law enforcement. What we bring to this um, is a particular both resources and uh, legal tools that can be used to track uh, uh, the use of the internet to make those threats, emails to make those threats, text messages, telephone calls to make those threats. Uh, and that's a lot of what we do is to help the state and locals identify the source of those threats and then to go out and knock on doors and investigate, uh, you know, whether violence was actually uh, contemplated. And you have the resources that <clears throat> you be believe you need in order to make certain that our elections are safe and sound? I, I think we have the resources <clears throat> that we need to develop, to investigate these threats uh, 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 to the people who are really the foundation of our democracy, volunteers who are um, you know, running our elections. That's the way we do things in the United States. Um, uh, of course, state and local elected officials are also being threatened, but so also are the volunteers who are election judges, you know, put the ballots in the boxes, et cetera. You made a comment about returning to some of the norms uh, that maybe uh, have drifted over time or our focus on them. Can you briefly describe to me a couple of those where you see positive trending? Yeah, um, I think the most important is uh, uh, the principle that uh, we treat like cases alike, that, that we don't have one rule for Democrats or Republicans, rich, poor, powerful, powerless, based on ethnicity. 
Another uh, important norm is that we um, decide um, uh, our criminal investigations and affirmative um, civil law enforcement investigations without any uh, interference uh, from the White House or, frankly, from the Congress. Uh, mm -hmm. These decisions are made on the merits um, um, without um, any uh, uh, policy or political interference. I think one thing One of the problems that we are running into is that for the highly valuable assets that can be seized from the Russian oligarchs, like massive yachts or Fabergé eggs or other uh, works of very expensive art, the value is well above $500,000. And right now, we have an administrative forfeiture procedure that applies for uh, assets that are valued only up to $500,000. Above that, you have to go through a different procedure. The nutshell way that I think about this is that the simpler administrative forfeiture procedure allows the government to proceed in rem against the asset. And people have to show up if they have a claim to the asset. It's a little bit like what the Department of Justice did with botnets. They had a proceeding in rem against the botnet, and anyone who laid claim to that botnet and asserted a right not to have it taken down they were welcome to show up in court and present themselves. They probably would have gone off in handcuffs, but they certainly had that right. With respect to the assets above $500,000 that are associated with the Russian oligarchs who are associated with the really criminal war that Putin has launched into Ukraine, uh, we would like to see the law changed. Uh, Senator Graham supports this. Senator Blumenthal and I support this. We have legislation to support this. And uh, I just wanted to take my moment here with you to make sure that you and I, the marshal service, uh, your forfeiture offices are all properly aligned so that we can move quickly to get this changed. At the moment, having to identify the owner of an asset, which is often hidden in Russian nesting doll layers of uh, faraway bank accounts, shell corporations, um, Cyprus uh, holding companies um, really puts a major crimp in our ability to proceed fairly. And I don't think there's any national interest or public interest in having Russian oligarchs who've supported this war treated better than American citizens simply because their assets are more valuable. So uh, would you please tell your team to uh, green light uh, working with us to get this bill passed quickly out of this committee and uh, into legislation on the floor. As you can imagine, I'm wholeheartedly in favor of the team working with you on this. Uh, as you know, we recently, thanks to the work of the Congress, were able, I was able to um, uh, certify for transfer to Ukraine uh, the uh, money that was seized from uh, one oligarch, Molofiev, and most recently, uh, our task force klepto capture succeeded in forfeiting $75 million from uh, Victor Vexelberg. Um, uh, they have done an, an enormous amount of work to find nesting within nesting within nesting of uh, uh, shell corporations. It would be easier if that weren't required. Um, so we'd be happy to work with your team on this. Yeah, Thank you course. very much. Thank you, Chairman. I want to talk about the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, yeah. specifically Section 702. Not exactly the topic of major inquiry here, but enormously important. Yeah. And 
without going into any classified information, that provision, I believe, was instrumental in preventing major catastrophic aggression against our nation and also helping our allies like the Ukrainians with intelligence that was extremely critical to pushing back the Russians and knowing what they needed to know on the battlefield. Could you comment on the importance of reauthorizing Section 702? Yes, Senator, this is a statute that I was, you know, we didn't have the last time I was at the Justice Department, so I, I really didn't know what to expect uh, when I came in um, uh, this time. I will tell you that every morning I have a all-threats briefing uh, with the FBI, uh, with an intelligence community briefer which, with our National Security Division. A enormously large percentage of the threats information that we're receiving comes from 702 collection. Um, it, all, all the examples that you're talking about, uh, Ukraine, uh, threats by uh, uh, foreign uh, terrorist organizations, uh, threats coming in from uh, adversaries from China, from North Korea, from Iran, from Russia. Um, 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 a lot of what we do in the area of cyber, and particularly in ransomware investigations, of finding out who is behind the ransomware investigation, uh, and sometimes of obtaining the keys, uh, comes from um, information um, that is at least part fed by Section 702. Uh, we would be intentionally blinding ourselves uh, to extraordinary danger, in my view. And this is not a view that I jumped on, you know, I've always held. This is something I've learned as I've been at the department. And blinding our allies as well. Thank you. Oh, yeah, and our allies as well, yes. As you know, the FBI raided Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home. And subsequent to that raid, there have been multiple leaks about what was discovered there, including a photograph of documents that were discovered there. Did, did you know about the leaks? The, photo the photograph was a filing in court in response to a motion filed by Mr. Trump. It was not a leak. So, so you're testifying there haven't been leaks about the, the Trump raid investigation? I'm, I'm responding to the point about Do the Do you know about the leaks that have occurred concerning Trump? I've read Trump the today. leaks. They are inappropriate. We also don't know where they come from. I very much hope that an investigation of Hunter Biden is focused not just on his own personal substance abuse issues, but on connections to his father and potential corruption. That is the matter of public concern and why people are concerned. It was striking that the leak that came out from DOJ suggested this is just going after some poor, poor person struggling with drugs instead of looking at the very real evidence of corruption. Will you commit that the investigation will actually examine the public corruption aspect and not simply scapegoat Hunter Biden as an individual? I can't comment about the investigation other than to say that all the matters involving Mr. Hunter Biden are in the purview of the U.S. Attorney in Delaware. It's not restricted in his investigation in any way. Washington Post reports this morning showdown before the raid <clears throat> that senior FBI officials who would be in charge of leading the search resisted doing so as too combative and proposed instead to seek Trump's permission to search his property. These field agents wanted to shutter the criminal investigation altogether in early June, the Post reports, but they were overruled by Maine DOJ. 
So I guess in light of your earlier testimony just this morning, my question is, how often do you overrule FBI field agents for political purposes? I've skimmed that article. It is not, that's not an accurate reflection of what the article says, and I'm not able to comment on the investigation. Um, my comment earlier was about tactics uh, on the ground in particular cases. Wait, 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 wait. You said it's not an, I'm, I'm reading to you from the article, quote, Senior FBI officials who would be in charge of leading the search resisted the plan as too combative and proposed instead to seek Trump's permission to seek his property, according to four people who spoke on condition of anonymity to describe a sensitive investigation, In quote. Again, I have to say I'm not able to uh, uh, describe the investigation. I will say as a general ma matter and a, at a high level of, uh, of generality that in my experience, long experience as a prosecutor, there is often a robust discussion and in the end, and it's encouraged among investigators and prosecutors. Attorney General, my time is very, is made. My, yes, and you made the decision. I did, that's right. Not, you said you did. No, I'm sorry. What I said was I approved the decision. So you didn't make the decision I to rape? I approve the decision to seek a search warrant after probable cause was Overruling filed. the FBI agents who did not want to do so. Did you talk about this with the White House the before? The memorandum you? does not, that, that um, uh, Washington Post article does not say what you're saying. I'm sorry. And I'm not able to describe this uh, in any further well, detail. Well, I, th I think given that, Mr. Chairman, I'll just ask that this entire article be entered into the record. Why have you cooperated with the document requests that were made from Democratic-led committees, but you have refused, Chairman Jordan, and you have refused the House Judiciary Committee when they are requesting documents that pertain to President Biden's mishandling of classified documents. So um, we greatly respect the uh, oversight responsibilities of the committees of the Congress. Um, and at the same time, we have to protect our ongoing investigations. I do not believe we turned over information uh, to the January 6th committee. You have authorized special counsel to investigate the classified materials, both at uh, President Biden's home as well as former President Trump's home. Special counsels that have some independence by their designation. Could you explain why you did that? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, to the extent... Stent, I've already uh, publicly uh, explained why uh, we appointed special counsel in those two cases. Um, <clears throat> with respect to President Trump, he had announced that he um, um, uh, was a candidate uh, for president, and President Biden had indicated that he would be a candidate. And I thought that's an extraordinary uh, circumstance. Um, um, and well-fitting within the regulations um, uh, to provide a level of uh, independence and accountability that fit within the purpose of the special counsel regulations. With that, the hearing is adjourned. Lawfare No Bull is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution and Goat Rodeo. You can support Lawfare's suite of podcasts by joining our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash lawfare. That's www.patreon.com slash lawfare. You should rate and review Lawfare No Bull wherever you found us. And you should share us on all the social medias. And as always, thanks for listening.